0: First of all, for those of you who don't know Christopher, he's CEO of the Los Angeles Opera Company. Now, my dad's a CEO as well. I know what he does. He's an engineer. So I know very well what kind of work he does. What do you do all day here? How does it work?
1: <laughs> uh, do you
0: oversee the general arc of the company and the future for the company? Is it big, big idea stuff?
1: Well, it's it's both. I mean, I, you know, I've been with the company for 20 years um, and I came up in the company through the a realm of artistic administration, and so uh, both by dint of my personal interests and the fact that I think that the company only exists to produce art, to remove barriers between artists and audiences, mm-hmm. um, I try to start Well, I, I try to make sure that the theme of every day is ruled by that idea, which is how do you remove a barrier between an artist and an audience member? Mm-hmm. How do you remove barriers? between artists and them producing their best work? And how do we make sure that everyone in the company is really focused on what the purpose of the institution is, mm-hmm. which is that, mm-hmm. which is which is how do you create opportunities for, for artists and, and art? Um, however, um, you know, over the course of my 20 years with the company, I have come to understand that everything is pretty related within the ecosystem. And so, as you might imagine, I mean, we, have to raise $30 million from private sources every year. Some large piece of my day is uh, making sure that we are um, on track to raise $30 million from private sources every year. Um, Some part of my day is spent on marketing, on communications, on PR, on um, education. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to have my hand pretty close on the wheel on uh, the artistic product. I still think that's where things can go kind of pear-shaped and so I am actually Probably more involved than most CEOs would be on artistic planning, casting, creative team management, mm-hmm. uh, working very closely with with the senior management here on on those issues. It's pretty varied. Um, in an ideal world, I'm just the white blood cells that are going to where the particular—I uh, wouldn't want to call it a crisis—but wherever the particular needs of that that day are. Mm-hmm um but also as you point out part of my responsibility is to make sure that i am always looking 12 months two years five years ten years ahead and also trying to keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the culture of los angeles which is a very interesting place to run an opera company as you might imagine sure um and to make sure that the company is adapting in real time to um i don't want to overstate this but to market forces to the cultural climate, Mm -hmm. uh, to the political climate. The economy. Sure. Yeah. Um, Is is
0: it a hardship to steer or is it pretty pretty fast? How how does this place move for you?
1: Well, by opera company standards, um, we are incredibly fleet of foot, Mm -hmm. um, which is attributable to a bunch of different reasons, one of which is the relative youth of the company, so that the neither the architects of the institution nor the audience for it have any particular fixed idea about um, the institution. That That's overly vague, but that we, we are really fleet of foot. Mm-hmm. And then there's this funny historical anomaly, which has to do with the fact that we're in Los Angeles. And so um, everyone uh, when, when the company was founded, the, the artists that formed the foundation of the institution, which is the orchestra and the chorus, this is more of an orchestra issue than a chorus issue, mm-hmm. um, wanted to remain freelance in order to be able to take more lucrative work uh, with studios. Now sure. that work has waxed and waned over the course of uh, the last 31 years. But what it means is the institution from a financial point of view is remarkably flexible um, and responsive in a way that a older company like a San Francisco or a Chicago or a metropolitan opera can't necessarily respond to that because the way in which the contracts are established mm-hmm. are less, um, responsive. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's a mechanical idea for me. I think that, uh, the character, the DNA of the institution has always been very, um, engaged in Inside the community, mm-hmm. it's it's always looked outside. Um, sometimes institutions can get in their own way by getting very very insular and being uh, really focused on the preservation of the institution itself.
0: Sure, in a highfalutin sort of way. Do you mean or e- economically? I think, I think
1: that the. I, I mean, I think that institutions can sometimes be slow to adapt mm-hmm. because they're they're designed to preserve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas I think that the company that Peter founded was so was was already looking from from the moment of conception, it was already engaged with the world. It mm-hmm. was engaged with the international opera scene. It was deeply engaged with the experiment of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and I think that's only he'd become more and more uh, a focal point mm-hmm. as the company has matured. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, now I have to admit that I I honestly did not know you'd been here oh. for two decades.
1: Yeah. How did that start? Since the dawn of time. Yeah. Uh, it started. I was. Uh, this is a long story. I was in um, graduate school. I started working for um, the Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina. Sure. I start. I, I did an internship there. I uh, through a funny series of events, I suddenly was became the rehearsal administrator. Um these stories overlap a little bit, but I, I ended up remaining at the Splato Festival for five years and it was pretty formative in in my career and in the way that I looked at the world. But mm-hmm. um, I was in a uh, graduate school at the University of Michigan. I met uh, David DeCura, who was at the time uh, both artistic director of Michigan Opera Theater and Opera Pacific. Mm-hmm. I had a very, very successful classical um, theater company in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so with the hubris of youth, the two founders of the company, um, well there were three of us, uh, decided that we would move the company to Los Angeles. It promptly fell apart as we crossed the county line, but I had the assurance of knowing that I had a job when I arrived, Mm -hmm. which was uh, to become company manager of Opera Pacific.
0: Um, You know, I sang at Opera Pacific for... Quite a few seasons. Oh, you
1: did. I did. So I was there in. I was there uh, in the end. I was only there for nine months, but uh, in 1996. So the last, uh, and in that period was when David Decura left. Right. A man named Patrick Beach came to run the company. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little bit of uh, chaos around that transition.
0: Well, there was always chaos at Aber Pacific. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: It was. It was in. It was an interesting company. Yeah. And, and and very admirable in in a lot of ways. Sure. Uh, There was a woman named Andrea Allison, who I was friendly with, who was the assistant to the artistic administrator at the time, Christopher Hahn at at LA Opera. Mm -hmm. She was leaving. She called me to interview for the job. I did. Um, I didn't get it. A woman named Tessa Bergen, this is a lot of detail, but a woman named Tessa Bergen took the job. She was getting a divorce from a man named Chris Bergen, who Mm -hmm. is the author of many of LA Opera's super titles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, She took the job. Uh, Six months later, in um, a production that was really wonderful here. Uh, Return of Ulysses uh, fell in love with a guest conductor and they ran off. And so actually the job opened up wow. again. Wow. Um, about seven months later. and yeah. uh Christopher called me. I came up. I interviewed with uh, Peter Hemmings and the very office that we sit in today. Yeah. And I did one last stint at the Spoleto Festival that summer and came to work here in uh, August of 1997 with uh, Fedora, with Maria Ewing and, and Pascaro Domingo. And, sure. uh at were you, were that you time, living I think the here? second of the second uh, uh, revival of the Herb Ross poem, which, which we've seen a lot um, since then. Sure. Uh, at the time, I lived in West Hollywood, and you were tr- you were commuting down
0: Orange to County. Orange County, I see. I was. So it was yeah. a great move for you. Uh,
1: yeah, but not yeah, not not just for 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 geography. I, sure. I felt a I felt a real kindred spirit with um, Christopher and Peter at the time. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the company has gone through. Uh, a series of pretty dramatic changes between um, then and now, and yet I believe in this very deeply that there's there's kind of institutional DNA, and I think that the the place in a way still resembles the the place that was forged by the founders, most of whom are still on our board, and and by Peter.
0: Sure, I, I mean I've I've been so this is my eleventh season uh, with the company, and I've always I'm constantly impressed by the the. the the craftsmanship and the and the quality of the productions that we that we turn in and the, the quality of the singers that we have, the familial collegial feeling among amongst the chorus and the staff, um, it's it's really a pleasant place
1: to work. Um, well, that atmosphere, I, I I attribute a lot of that to this this DNA that I'm talking about. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, people talk about this a lot that the the atmosphere of this house is different than the atmosphere of other houses. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I hear that from the artists too. The uh, the singers that come through that I've yeah. interviewed. Yeah, and from yeah. a
1: competitive point of view, I mean, mm-hmm. part part of part of our job, part of my job, is to attract the world's best artists, and that means, you know, uh, less so conductors because we we have such a um, incredible roster inside the house, but mm-hmm. principal singers, designers, directors, and you know, we are still in the opera world. We are still. Um, out here in the sticks particularly for singers and so one of the attractions that we have um, is that we have an atmosphere here which is one not of coercion Mm -hmm. but one of cooperation in which people are being um, we try to adapt the support system of the institution to support the work of an artist um, as opposed to trying to throw them up against the wall to get their best performance out and that is one of the means by which we can compete with Covent Garden and Munich and San Francisco and Chicago to, to get those kinds of artists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there's a kind of a natural life cycle, which means that, you know, we could boast the fact that we had um, a run of four productions with the and Viazon, and then they end up leaving us uh, because there's an economy of scale, which the Met can offer that we can't offer. Mm-hmm. So that's just part of the natural cycle. Mm-hmm. But it does, I mean, it's important to me personally that that the house runs like that. It's really important to Placido. Mm-hmm. That, that is his natural state. His natural state is that of uh, warmth and generosity. Um, it was the state of, of Peter Hemmings. Um, uh, it's really important to me that we make sure that all the people that we curate that are part of this grand experiment in terms of staff and artists are... are are all working to maintain that atmosphere because it's rare and it needs to be protected. Right,
0: right. Now I'm glad you brought up Placido. Uh, I've had conversations with colleagues of mine about Placido. What what does the post-Placido epic look like here at I don't, at LA I don't, Opera? I, What's going I to happen? Know, are you going to bring in Bono? You know, or, or like, what what do you do? Uh, sting? Who's going to be the the guy that brings everybody sting.
1: in? We are. We're y- going to bring in Sting. You know what I mean? It's it's funny. I, I get this question a lot. It's not something oh, you do. I, I think okay. about. Well, no, it's just not something that I think about very deeply because I don't I don't see any I mean, he he is a man who moves through the world um uh with with an incredible uh sense of, of youth and brio. And mm-hmm. I mean he, he he puts me to shame, frankly. I mean, everybody. I d I don't know so, anybody
0: that works more than he does. Yeah.
1: So it, it's not something that I think about very deeply. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you know, he's just renewed through twenty twenty two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had the privilege of working alongside him for for twenty years, and I, I don't, I don't see any incentive to make that stop. And it is part of my job to make sure that he doesn't see it either. Sure. Um, I don't think that he's done here. I don't. No, think, no, I don't of course. Th- no, I mean that I don't think. I I don't want to speak for him, but I don't. I don't think that he's accomplished everything that he's wanted to accomplish. And if you take stock of this man's career, which is genuinely sui generis. I mean, the the last kind of mountain he has to climb is is this idea of of being taken seriously as an administrator, mm-hmm. and I I think there's a lot of uh, slightly silly and lazy things that get said about about that idea um, about him as as general director, but I think people misunderstand the criteria by which uh, the constituency here judges him, which mm-hmm. is not the same criteria by which you would judge. Uh, David Guckley or Peter Gelb and frankly is the reason why I'm here you know p- part of the reason I'm here is to be the boots in the ground for his artistic vision
0: sure I mean it, it, there's nobody that compares to him now or in history frankly in in more than one way I mean it's unbelievable I I guess my question is the when when he is eventually not here is there is there a necessity to bring in somebody of celebrity or somebody of I don't know how to put it like he he's the reason I'm here I mean I
1: I'm, well, I'm I'm personally interested in the idea of a kind of uh grand curator hmm. um but I mean you look at the masthead of the LA opera we are we are kind of it is a remarkably flexible institution in that you can bring in someone like a Matthew or Coin who can make a kind of immediate impact on the institution, sure. and is given license to do so by people like Placido and James and Grant. Th- there's no sense of kind of ownership over where the ship is. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I-, I don't think it's a surprise to people to know that I'm interested in multi-year programmatic threads. I'm interested in um, a kind of a a long look at at certain kinds of repertory. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in sustained relationships with artists. I don't know. It's In the end, it's not really up to me. It's right. kind of up to the board. But I do think that um, this model of the kind of artist curator and the institution has a r- kind of responsibility to that artist to kind of follow their muse. That is really interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the idea that the institution takes on the character of that particular Thread which is engendered by the by that person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say celebrity in and of itself is that compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, vision and I, and I yeah. don't I don't yeah it's yeah. vision sure it's vision and taste sure and uh, a kind of relentless pursuit of excellence. That's mm-hmm. a really important thing to organize an opera house around. That. Um, We almost get there every time, but we never quite get there. It's this carrot and stick mentality which is really useful because it means that the institution's always striving to be better and more.
0: And the orchestra and the chorus can always sniff out a phony.
1: Oh sure. (laughs) That's I mean. So
0: that there is something really admirable about somebody like like Matt O'Coyne coming and you think, holy shit, I mean this guy. This is the real thing, and I like working with this guy. And yeah, it, it, and I mean,
1: again, I think I, I go back to my responsibilities. I think my responsibility is to make sure that um, those phonies are few and far between. Right. Like if not, if not, um, entirely absent. Yeah, yeah. absent from the from the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah,
0: right. Now, did you always have an interest in artistic administration? I mean, it seems like it goes back. Uh, pretty far back to when you were in college. I mean, is this is? I, I think what I'm getting at is that most of my guests who perform at a very high level or have uh, achieved a very high level of success within their fields seem to have one thing in common, that and that is, for the most part, they knew what they wanted to do when they were kids, and then they pursued that. Is that is that the case for you? Tell me how this started. Let's go back to the the beginning when you were falling off your bicycle.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I I grew up I grew up in a suburb of Boston. I had zero exposure to opera. We were between opera companies, um, so we didn't have one. I had uh, limited exposure to classical music um, at all. Relatively limited exposure to theater. Um, it's something that I fell into in high school almost immediately. We, you know, one of the privileges of going to such a giant high school was that. Um, we had incredible natural resources in the, in this, in, in the actual physical plant. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, two theaters, one gigantic theater, I think it was an 1800 seat theater, and one 500 seat theater. We had a full-time TV station, we had a full-time radio station. Wow. We had an entire building devoted to fine arts. And there was a kind of a little light bulb moment for me in my freshman year. I think you know, um, one goes kind of looking for one's tribe, and um, There was a light bulb moment for me almost immediately i don't i don't know why i decided to audition i i did but almost instantly i found my tribe and that that became a really important community to me
0: um this is the theater department or the orchestra this is the theater department Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so i acted in a couple of shows i started directing almost uh immediately i was directing musicals i was designing posters um you know if, if there was some fundamental thing that I stumbled on although I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time it was that I was attracted to I mean this is a kind of a debased term these days but you know I I, I, I backed up into being an aesthete I was interested in aesthetics I was interested in storytelling and I was interested in the kind of exerting control over those worlds and was interested in that kind of escape mm-hmm. um I haven't thought about this too deeply but I do I do think that as a you know, growing up in a Roman Catholic Irish immigrant family, despite the last name, um, in the nineteen eighties, you know, I uh, and and as a gay man, I there was a kind of sense of being the other. Right. And I mean this is a very common tale. Sure. But that you know, I, I always felt um alien and alienated from from inside of, at least my family community. Not that they weren't supportive and loving but I just knew that I wasn't they were not my people and in this theater community and in the fact that there was this incredible infrastructure in which we were doing five or six shows a year mm-hmm. you know I, I had found that community without ever being able to articulate to myself you know what the nature of that community was
0: was that hard for your family to to realize that you were not that you were an outsider I think it's still hard for them Is I don't it? I
1: think they have any idea um, I mean I, I mean I think they're they're kind of you know, they're very proud. Mm -hmm.
0: You have a good relationship with your your folks? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like everybody. There's a reason you don't still live at home. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's, yes. (laughs) I think they're baffled, frankly. Interesting. Are you an only Um, child?
1: I'm not. I have a sister um, who passed away about five years ago. Oh my God. uh, Who's an an older sister um, who also was a, I mean not not really of of this cut from the same cloth. Not cut from the same cloth. Mm. Which is not I'm not I'm not trying to make myself seem no, more no. exotic than I am. Sure. I mean I think it's a very common uh story, you know, and, and maybe less common these days when uh we're well, pre-Trump we were in kind of an age of assimilation. Mm-hmm. But I mean there is a there is a kind of cyclical diaspora, which I think happens with, you know, young gay people in which they're trying to get away from um, the constrictions of, of the way in which you are defined the by... The paradigms, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, again, not something I think about too much, but the... I mean, almost everyone that I grew up with is still there. I mean, there's something very specific to Boston which has to do with... there. There is a, a kind of reflexive, inherent um, uh, tr- tribalism, insularity... Is it about being Irish to, to in Boston? Community. Is that part of it? I don't know. This... Uh, suddenly, we seem like we're in a we're in a like a scorsese film or something but i i I don't know there 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 there's something a little a little bit tribal about it. i mean almost er, almost everyone i grew up with is still within a five to ten mile radius of of where we grew up sure um and i say that without judgment it's just an observation i i couldn't wait to get out Hmm. um as a way of kind of uh i guess redefining it that being said you know I, i grew up in a relatively um I would say economically conservative environment, and so I thought that, didn't exactly know where my path would lead, but I believed that I was going to become an attorney of some kind. I thought vaguely, because I had an interest in theater, I should become an entertainment attorney. Mm-hmm. That was kind of in the back of my mind, mm-hmm. but I hadn't, I didn't, I didn't really figure it out for a long time. Um, in my third year of college, I had a uh, study abroad in London, and that. That was when the world started to crack open for me hmm. it was when I saw my first opera weirdly enough. What was it? Do you remember? Zer- of course. Yeah. <laughs> it was a transformative moment yeah. for me. Uh, it was the Nick Heitner uh, production of Xerxes. Sure. Still one of my favorite operas. Still one of my favorite productions. Still one of my favorite directors. Wow. Um, at the English National Opera. Yeah. Um, but for me part of the I'm. Um, this is a bit of a monologue. I apologize. I love it. Uh, Part of the epiphany for me was here was a community of civilians, of individuals who treated theater in a way that th- it wasn't exotic for them. That's there, was, right. there was no difference for them between going to a movie in a way, uh, often a movie was more expensive to go to in London than to go to a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead* in a pub. <laughs> um, and that it was just a kind of a regular part of the culture. Right. And I found that really inspiring, the idea that... Um, this thing that Americans, especially opera, of course, ha- have turned into something that feels so exotic and remote, mm-hmm. was just a normal part of the human experience. And if I have any project at the LA Opera, it's the quest to to, to make try, that so. Yeah, yeah to try mm-hmm. to to try to demystify the art form, to to try to get people to understand that um, this should be part of your regular diet. About the if the project of humanity is to understand the mystery that's right. of the human condition that this this is a necessary part of of that quest
0: what you just said it uh, really speaks to me first of all this podcast is about that it's about me not being too erudite and it's about me not being very eloquent and just asking stupid questions of people who have really made an impact in this art world frankly that that's if you really want to get to brass tacks that that's part of my charge here secondly what you said about art being a a defining endeavor is something i grew up believing and i believe in it wholeheartedly that art of all sorts be it sculpture or painting or or movement or music in particular for me because that seems to speak to me the most is a thing that defines us as animals above and beyond everything else on this planet it's the thing where we have the capacity to conceptualize our lives and to seek out things that give it meaning because without it, it's just desperation. And frankly, I'm feeling a little bit desperate right now, just based on what's happening politically. But uh, it's always music that gets me out of that. I've been listening to more music uh, since January than I think I have in my entire life. Every day, all day long.
1: Well, I mean, there, there is a there is a real spiritual. I mean, I mean we're in a secular age, uh, but for me, music, opera in particular, you know, there's a real spiritual component to it that transcends
0: um, the banal. Uh, Animalistic part of our yeah. existence. And yeah. it to
1: me feels feels as necessarily ritualistic as going to church on a Sunday. I mean I'm I'm deeply, deeply lapsed. But 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 for me a, a reflection on human greatness mm-hmm. um and human frailty and human pain, that that feels absolutely necessary. And I think I, I worry sometimes that as a culture we've marginalized these ideas, um, maybe pre-trump and the elevation of of the idea of 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 commerce and vocation being the 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 new gods mm-hmm. and in this era you know i'm not I'm not you know it'll take us years to sort out what's actually happening now but we we risk i think collectively risk the idea that that culture is an affectation either an affectation of the left foreign and of the left mm-hmm. or an affectation of the rich
0: yeah the elites yeah mm-hmm.
1: and when in fact you know, it's it sh- it's a pretty fundamental a uh, part of of the human experience to my mind, mm-hmm. and um, it's important to me that we fight for the idea that it is a, it is a not only a fundamental human right that everyone have access to this, but that actually, to my mind, it is absolutely necessary to trying to m- make, as you say, to try to make meaning of of yeah, why are we here? What yeah.
0: what is this? Yeah. What what are we doing? Now you mentioned spirituality. Are you are you still a
1: Catholic? lapsed, deeply lapsed.
0: So what do you think? What do you believe? What happens when you when we kick this the bucket and leave this mortal coil? What's next?
1: Um I mean I hover a little bit between um the agnostic and the and the atheist except for the fact that I believe that in the presence of the divine in in the work of art. This mm-hmm. all this all that all sounds a little um it all sounds a little uh, weak, except that you know, if if you if you accept the premise that kind of whatever whatever organized religion will call God, I will call love or beauty. Mm. I mean, I, I think that that mankind is capable of of the greatest acts of, of humanity and beauty, and it's also obviously capable of of uh, of great um, evil and great amorality. I I like I like the process of of contending with that. I feel like that gets worked out for me when I go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and when I sit in in an opera house and when I, you know me you know, too e- even a piece me of too. music that I that I you know I go to a to Bruckner one and I don't particularly, you know, that feels like a fascist piece of music to me and yet it puts me in the correct mind um space to be able to to think deeply about um Mm-hmm. About man and man's inhumanity to man. Yeah, you're a humanist. Um, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah,
0: and that that, that, that I struggle with that. Uh, you, you know, I want so much to see my grandfather again. I want so much to to feel at peace, which I rarely find. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just generally <laughs> through the course of the day, uh, and the only evidence I have for that is what you're speaking about is the the feeling that I have when I. You know stand in front of a big Cy Twombly or stand in, you know or I listen to Beethoven nine uh John la Gardner's Beethoven nine for the hundred and tenth time um I do I do see that I, it's I, interesting I, you
1: talk about that because I, I think I think this is a I think that's absolutely true I also think it's a potential dead end that that what we're seeking is a kind of uh a contemplative state which is a placid. which is a state mm-hmm. uh, yeah, of placidity mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. i think is actually a I mean, I the work that I'm really attracted to <clears> is the one in which I get to really feel the feels. I mean, in which you're, you you really, um, you have a, you have a roiling, um, eruption of, of emotions. That's that cathartic, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, this, these are old ideas. Mm-hmm. The catharsis is what I really want to feel. Yeah. You know, I, I want to stand in front of a car and feel, and feel shock and awe. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite, Projects at the LA Opera have always been the ones that have been, uh, maybe the ones that have fallen the most flat <laughs> with yeah, the yeah. audience, okay? Because they're 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 Garing. difficult mm-hmm. and well they're emotionally challenging. I mean, you know, our our I think very maybe infamously our our Dido and Aeneas I think put the audience in the the most difficult space. This I think one we the just did a couple asked. seasons ago Yeah with Barry.
0: That yeah. was one of my favorite shows that I've ever participated in.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I agree. We we put the audience in a in a in a, in a very difficult space emotionally, mm. and I think half the audience really accepted that and wanted to go there and found catharsis in it, mm-hmm. and the other half of the audience really rejected it and maybe resented it for its
0: um, lack of entertainment. <laughs> well, or for its
1: for 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 the way in which it threw you against the wall and and forced you to confront you know right. big issues of mortality and death and. I mean that's a you know it was a it was a difficult evening in the theater I think in the best possible way right and you know on the, on the flip side you know we we are not an entertainment company we're an art company that's the, right. the world doesn't lack for opportunities to be entertained um, and so I while I think that some of what we do is entertaining I resist the idea that that's what we're here for that's because right. there's lots of different um, venues in which one can find. That, that that's exactly in the way that I meant it yeah yeah, yeah. And, and
0: and you know I agree with you with the catharsis I think you know my the, my favorite painting from the very first painting I fell in love with well there were two there was the triptych the Hieronymus Bosch triptych uh
1: the whole world <laughs> in that painting
0: uh and Saturn devouring his son so yeah. I oh. uh you know the Goya so I um I feel that I think what's happening to me now is that I have two young kids at home and I just need I just want some I just want to Kincaid to look at and just look at the little cabin in the in the woods and wondering you know what's going on in there. That's yeah. <laughs> that's enough. It's, yeah, a
1: little nostalgia. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned those, the Goya paintings. That that's a real. I mean, I, I you know I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet and i get to travel a lot for my job and yeah. i get to go to a lot of opera houses yeah and one of my favorite 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 pilgrimages is to go to the, the prado, prado and to oh. sit and to sit in that room me too and if you time it correctly you're not in the room with the school children all due respect to your children and any no children, no no yeah yeah but that if you time it correctly you can actually have a a uh, an experience of those paintings alone and it will bring you to your knees i agree